Our scripture reading today comes from Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 14. Now, to briefly set the stage for this, and we'll talk more about this later, uh, the kingdom of Judah had disobeyed God, actually had disobeyed God for generations. And God finally decided that it was that he needed to do something about this. And so he sent the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar uh, to take the city of Jerusalem, which he did. And then he took all of the leaders of the people, all the skilled craftsmen, everybody who he thought was valuable, he took them back with him to Babylon. And Jeremiah is writing in this context. Uh, before Jeremiah's life is over, Judah's going to rebel again, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry all of the people off into exile. So this is our context here. It's between these two different phases of the exile to Babylon. So Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan and Gamariah, the son of Helkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to start, actually, I said I was going to cheat a little bit. I want to start back with the passages that we read in connection with with uh, our confession and forgiveness of sins. What's remarkable here, when we take a look at what Peter is doing in our second reading, uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are all things 
that God had said about Israel. Every one of them has multiple references throughout the Old Testament that you can find where these are terms that God used for his covenant people, for the people that he had chosen out of all of the nations to be a blessing on the earth. And what this tells us is that as Peter writes to us, we are God's covenant people now. But at the same time, from our first reading, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, we are, we, are God's, we are God's covenant people, but we are also at the same time sojourners and exiles. A sojourner, by the way, the, the Hebrew word refers to someone who, a foreigner who moves into an area and kind of settles there. He does, he's not part of, you know, he doesn't become a citizen of the, the place where he settles. He's, he's there as, um, as, well, as a foreigner living among another people. So that's the way Peter describes us. We're sojourners and we're exiles. How do these two things fit together? We're God's covenant people, but somehow we're also exiles. Somehow we're foreigners in the world where we're living. Well, it turns out, well, first of all, the reason why we're sojourners is that this world isn't our ultimate home. That as uh, Paul tells us in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a savior. So heaven is our native land, as it were now, as believers, as people of the covenant. And here in this world, we are exiles. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise if you actually take a look through scripture, because this theme of being away from home, this, this theme of being an exile or a sojourner, runs through it from beginning to the end. The first exiles in scripture are Adam and Eve. Their home was Eden. Because of their rebellion against God, they were sent off into exile. They were kicked out of Eden and forbidden to return. When we look at God's work in history, what we see is the beginnings of the movement toward creating a covenant people, really, start with Abraham. Abraham was a guy who was from, uh, from Ur, a, a city in Mesopotamia. It was an urban center for the day, rather cosmopolitan. He and his family moved up the Euphrates River, then founded another city, another urban area called Haran. And from there, God tells him, Abraham, Leave your family, leave everybody you know, leave the city, and go. I'll, I'll show you where to go, but just go, get moving. And so Abraham traveled from there to, the, to a land that God promised to give to his descendants, not to him. And so Abraham lived as a nomad, as someone who was who traveling around following his herds. No settled, the only property Abraham ever owns in the promised land is his wife's grave. He's a sojourner. He's an exile. The same is true of Isaac and Jacob. Uh, the author of Hebrews summarizes it like this, talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. But a city not in this world. They're looking for something more and recognizing that their time here is temporary and that their true home is elsewhere. Now, what happens from there in Israel's history, I'm going to give you a very fast summary of some of the, the themes here. What happens from there, uh, there's a famine, and Israel has to go to Egypt to survive. This is the whole Joseph story, things like that. I'm not going to get into that. But what happens is they stay in Egypt for 400 years, and they get, well, settled. They begin to become very much at home in Egypt. They got comfortable there. And the net result is they got enslaved. There is, by the way, a hint there that if we get too comfortable in this world, we'll also get enslaved. Not maybe in the literal sense that, the, that Israel did, but this world is going to try to capture you. It is going to try to drag you into its net and get you to live its way. And that's what happened to the Israelites in Egypt. In a lot of ways, we can see this in Egypt as a, um, as a parable for us today. So God sends Moses um, and Aaron to lead people to, to deliver Israel from the Egyptians. Again, we don't need to get into that, but we go into this period of the Exodus. And when they leave Egypt, the people, rather than being excited that, yay, we've got our freedom, what do they do? I'm really kind of sick of eating manna. We had leeks and onions and garlic back in, in Egypt. I want to go back to Egypt. They preferred to return to enslavement in Egypt than to live as sojourners, exiles, to live in transit to the land God had promised them. And it turns out that they were so reluctant to go where God wanted them to go that finally he said to them, okay, have it your way, you're staying in the wilderness. And they were in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation that knew Egypt died off. Because it, was, it, was, it took that much to free them from their attachment to this world or to Egypt. Now, it's worth noting, and then afterwards, of course, they go into Israel. But it's worth noting that throughout Scripture, there are a lot of pictures that Scripture gives us of what the coming of the Messiah is going to be like. And in fact, the most common one is it's going to be like a new exodus. Moses is a prototype, in a sense, of Christ. God uh, promises through him in Deuteronomy that God will send another prophet like me. The prophet like Moses is one of the first real clear images we get of what the Messiah is going to be. He's going to be the one who's going to bring in a new covenant, like Moses brought in the Old Covenant. He's going to be one who's going to deliver his people from sin. He's going to be the one who's going to bring them out of, well, this world, en route to the, promise, the ultimate promised land, the heavenly city. So we have this, this picture of 
you know, in the Exodus, we have a picture of what Christ is going to do, and also a picture of where we are. We are, in this sense, in the period of the wilderness wanderings, waiting to enter our homeland. Now, once Israel gets into the land, things don't go really well. Okay, you've got this problem with the Book of Judges, whole series of problems there. They establish a kingship. It sort of works for a while, but then rapidly falls apart. The kingdom splits. Northern kingdom gets crushed by Assyria, sent off into exile. Then you've got Judah. Judah, as I said before, is the exile occurs in a couple of phases. And here's the thing that is most galling about that. The kingdom of Judah, their exile is to Babylon. Now, probably doesn't mean a whole lot unless you start thinking back. Babylon goes back to the Tower of Babel, the place where people, again, tried to set themselves up as independent authorities, not doing what God wanted them to do, not obeying his, his commands. And throughout scripture, Babylon is used as an image of the world standing in opposition to God. It's really interesting, when you read the prophets, when you read the Old Testament, Assyria, which was an incredibly brutal, evil kingdom, is listed as being one of the kingdoms that is going to come and join Israel. Egypt, where they were in exile in Egypt, they're, they're, where the Israelites were in exile, they're going to come and join Israel. And so Assyria, Egypt, and Israel together are going to be God's people. Babylon never shows up in that kind of list. Babylon is always the picture of the enemy of God. And so where does Judah get sent? To Babylon. This is really disheartening, I suspect. And we know the Jeremiah's letter continues. I didn't read the last part of it. Um, but we've got hints of it even in the section that I gave you there. There were all kinds of people who were telling the Jews in Babylon that You're, this isn't going to last. We're going to be able to go back to Jerusalem. We'll be able to reestablish the kingdom and all of that. There are all kinds of false prophets who are giving them these promises, supposedly by God, that they're going to be able to return. God says, no, I didn't send them. They're lying to you. In fact... You are going to be in Babylon for 70 years. According to Moses in Psalm 90, that's the average lifespan of a person. Those of you who have gone into exile from Jerusalem, you're going to be dead before the people go back. This is, this is not a promise for you. You're not going to survive the exile but your descendants will. And in light of that, Jeremiah gives them instructions for how to live in exile. Because God tells them, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not ill. Plans to give you a future and a hope. The future and the hope don't necessarily apply to the people who are hearing the message for the first time. Most of them will be dead before this is fulfilled. 
but it's a future nonetheless that is guaranteed in this world at least physically to their descendants it's one of these things we tend to overlook when we read this you know that verse uh, i know the plans i have for you that verse shows up in plaques in christian bookstores all the time i don't think they pay attention to the context i don't think they're paying attention to what that is really saying but for our purposes since we too are strangers and exiles in this world as first peter tells us we should take a look i think at god's instructions for us in jeremiah on how to live in exile so all of that is the introduction <laughs> um yeah I, I should warn you as a college professor my average class length was an hour and a quarter um so, okay so anyway, let's take a look at specifically what, what, what Jeremiah tells the people. Well, first of all, or through God tells the people through Jeremiah. This first thing, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. What's, again, if, as we look at the larger picture in Scripture, what, well, first of all, what's striking about this is God is telling them, you're going to be here a while, settle in, you know, participate fully in life. You know, don't think this is a temporary measure. You're, you're here probably for the rest of your life. So live your life, build houses, plant gardens, eat the fruit, Get married, have kids. Have your kids get married and have kids. Now, from the broader perspective of Scripture, what God is telling them to do is essentially what God told Adam and Eve to do in the garden. What does he say? Well, first of all, um, in Genesis 1, you have God mandating to Adam and Eve, reproduce and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That sounds a lot like have kids, marry them off. Okay. When you go to Genesis 2, what, do, what, do, what happens in Genesis 2? God places Adam and Eve in a garden and ten, tells them to tend to the garden and eat the fruit. Well, what do we have here? Plant gardens, eat the fruit. Have kids. Increase, don't decrease. God is repeating to the exiles the instructions that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay. Now, the significance of this is much bigger than this is just sort of an echo of what we see in the garden. The, the, the real significance of this comes that in Genesis, it tells us that God made man in his own image. And theologians argue all the time about what the image of God is. Uh, but if you talk to Old Testament scholars, Hebrew scholars, they'll tell you, oh, that one's easy. It turns out that in the world of the Jews in this period in Babylon, um, all through the ancient Near East, any time someone claimed to be the image of a god, 
it was typically a king who would do this. The king, you know, king of Babylon would say, I am the image of Marduk, the prince of the god of Babylon. Every time he said that, what that meant was, I am designated by that god as his regent over the world or over the city or whatever. In other words, the idea of being the image of God means that God has given you authority to rule in his name. And if you know, in the pagan world, it's a God has given you that authority. But for the Jews and for the author of Genesis, God himself, first of all, didn't designate one king. He gave to all humanity his image, which meant, means that we are all, in a very real sense, royalty. And we all have the responsibility to rule in this world under his direction, under his authority. We are his stewards, we are his regents, we are his ambassadors in this world. And the way we do this, well again, look at the, look at Genesis, the, the trajectory in Genesis. What you see is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Okay, so if the earth is formless and empty, what do you have to do? you got to form it and fill it, right? The problem is it's formless and empty. So now we need to form it and fill it. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are days, check this out, read, his, re, read the days of creation in this light. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God is forming the world. Genesis 4, 5, and 6, he's filling the world. So Genesis, uh, day one, Genesis, day 1, 2, 3, he's forming. Day 4, 5, 6, he's filling, yeah. Um, okay, so day 1, God separates light and darkness. Day 4, God creates the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, God separates sea, the waters above and the waters below, basically sea and sky. Day five, God creates birds and fishes. Day, six, day three, God creates dry land. Day six, God creates land animals. That's the structure of Genesis, forming and filling. And then what does he say? He create, let us make man in our image. Let him have dominion over the earth. And what are they supposed to do? Reproduce and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, continue forming it. The garden, God gives Adam and Eve a prototype of what the world should look like in the garden, gives them all kinds of resources around it, and then he says, go thou and do likewise. You know, take, the, take the garden that I've started for you here and expand it and fill the earth. Bring it, subdue the earth, bring it all under, under control, subdue it, like you would subdue a garden. So that is what God, that, the, being made in the image of God, that's what it means. It means we are made to go out and build culture. To fill the earth and subdue it. That responsibility is never rescinded by God. When sin enters the world, what happens is things become much more difficult. They become, frankly, the word is painful. Women have pain in childbirth. Men have pain in producing the food from the land. But the call doesn't disappear. We're not supposed to stop having children or subduing the land. Our responsibility stands before God. It's just made much more difficult. And so, back to the exile. Remember that? Back to the exile. What does God say? 
that stuff that I told you to do, all of those things that you were created to do, you need to keep doing those. Plant gardens eat the fruit, have children multiply, don't decrease. Is actually, in a lot of ways, restating the job that we were given in Genesis at the very beginning. But it goes even further. Babylon, the ultimate picture of the enemy of God. What else are we supposed to do? We're supposed to bless the pagans. What does he say? Seek the welfare of the city. <laughs> Seek the welfare of Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you to exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. We are, <clears throat> as exiles, we are supposed to be blessing the pagans. We're supposed to be blessing the world around us, even if that world is in full-scale rebellion against God. We're to pray for it. We're to pray for its prosperity. We're supposed to seek its good. We're supposed to do all of these things because ultimately our blessings, at least in this world, are wrapped up in the good of the world that we're placed in. Now, Second Peter, our earlier readings, Second Peter gives us some instructions for how to do this. If you'll turn back to page three in your bulletin, the words that call the words calling us to confession tell us what it looks like to bless the place where we are sojourners and exiles. By the way, Peter, in uh, 1 Peter 5.14, he says he is writing to the people from Babylon. Babylon, in this case, is, is a code word for Rome. It's the empire that's in rebellion against God. But So we've, we've got a Babylon connection there anyway. But what, what does he say? Well, first of all, we're supposed to live conspicuously good lives among the pagans. We're supposed to live lives that are qualitatively good, that people can look at us and say, these people are different. They're good people. Now, this means, among other things, Peter tells us, to abstain from evil desires. Well, what does that mean? Well, I would suggest that the old categories of the seven deadly sins are a good place to start here, but we can think about pride. Uh, the pride, the word pride in connection with sin, uh, the Latin word is superbia, and it refers to this idea that I am above other people. I think of myself as being higher, better, superior to the people around me. The flip side of pride is envy, where pride wants to push yourself to the front. Envy wants to tear down anybody who's ahead of you. Uh, we can talk about covetousness. Um, he mentions here covetousness can be any number of things. Um, you know, when you look at the Tenth Commandment, it includes sexual covetousness, covetousness uh, lust. It includes relational covetousness. It includes greed. All of those kinds of things. We can look at gluttony, you know, uh, an inordinate desire for food or other things in this world. I mean, there's a whole host of things that we can look at as evil desires. We're supposed to. We're supposed to push these things off. Paul talks about mortifying them, putting them to death. These aren't things that, that should characterize our lives. We should live lives of conspicuous goodness, which means lives devoid of these kinds of things. We're supposed to behave honorably. Now, interestingly enough, if you read what Peter said, 
Um, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Did you catch that? When you behave honorably, they are still going to speak evil of you. But when Christ returns, they'll acknowledge that what you have done is right and give glory to God then. But living an honorable life isn't necessarily going to make you popular. Get over it. We're called to do it anyway. And then we get to our relations with authorities. Now, we have to translate the, this in a little bit. Uh, the, the terms here are a little different today because we are not living in an empire. Uh, I would argue that because we're in a republic, the responsibilities are a little bit different. We have to think this through a bit carefully here. So it says, um, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That doesn't change. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Let's pause there. We don't have an emperor. Uh, it's easy to say, well, the president or something like that. That's actually not the best way to think of it in the constitutional republic. In a constitutional republic, the constitution is supreme. Yeah. So we're to be subject to the constitution of the country. To governors as sent by him, well, by the emperor in this case, as established by the constitution. So the governing officials are included there. But notice that their purpose is to punish evil and reward good. If they start doing the opposite, it raises some serious questions about what our, what our responsibility um, should be there. I would suggest that the best way of thinking about this is to go back to the words of Jesus. Um, Jesus is, ask if it's legal to pay taxes to Caesar. It was actually a trap, but he got out of it by saying, give to Caesar what Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Um, what that tells us is that there are certain things that are legitimately Caesar's. In the Roman Empire, Caesar thought everything was his. Jesus is saying, well, yeah, there are some things that are Caesar's, but there are things that aren't. There are things that are God's. And you have to distinguish between what is Caesar's and what is God's, and thus, well, our higher obedience is always to God. Whenever we are facing a, an issue in questions about government and how we should respond to it, I would suggest that the first question that we need to ask is, is this law, is this regulation something that properly belongs to Caesar? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. And our response should always be predicated on, is this an area that God has designated that the government have authority in? It does this involve rewarding good and punishing evil? Because that is the purpose of the government that Peter here outlines. You see it also in Romans 13. But in the midst of all of this, we are still always the focus is to seek the good of the city. We're engaging in building culture, planting gardens, eating the fruit, having kids, all of that kind of thing. We are engaged in living good and honorable lives before people, even though it won't make us popular. We are engaged with the civil government in ways that are appropriate to our setting. And by doing all of these kinds of things, we will live lives that are so good that we will silence our critics. Notice again, 
Peter tells us, even if you're doing all this, you're still going to get critics. The object is not to be popular. The object is to be faithful. Okay. So, um, the last thing he tells us is actually, he doesn't use the word, but it's summarized by the word godliness. Now, godliness is a translation of both of, of the, the Latin word pietas, the Greek word um, eusebia. I, don't worry about that. The point of the word is that godliness consists in giving everybody what is their proper due. That's what the word means in the Greek and even in the Latin translation. Giving everyone their proper due. So it involves giving God what is his proper due. It involves giving the government what is its proper due, the leaders in the congregation their proper due, your neighbor what is their proper due, your parents, your children, all of these kinds of things. That's what godliness is. And so what we see here at the end of this is honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That is basically saying live a godly life, live a life of piety, live a life where you give to each person their proper due. Back to Jeremiah. The main theme of the letter, once again, Actually, when you read the whole letter, the thing that he hammers over and over again is, don't believe the false prophets who tell you it's going to be over soon. Don't believe them. It's not going to happen. It's 70 years, guys. It's beyond your lifespan. That's when I will come and visit you. That's when I will bring you back home. Translating that for us today... We don't have a time frame. We don't have 70 years or something like that until we know Jesus is coming back for us. We know he's coming back. We just don't know when it's going to be. And we have to be careful. One of the mistakes that I've seen over and over again in my 50 years as a believer is people predicting solid dates where Jesus has got to return by such and such a time. You know, uh, 1988. Um, you know, there's a whole series of these, one after another. We have to be careful not to do that. Jesus told us we're not going to know when he's going to come back. What matters, though, is that we live our lives now as people in exile the way he told us to live them. That we engage in the work that God gave humanity at the beginning, but doing it the correct way. Building culture reproducing and multiplying, filling the earth, and subduing it, but doing it under God's authority rather than our way, just like he told the exiles to do it. And we should be working out of the commandment to love God and love our neighbor, to live lives in this world, in the world around us, even though we cannot place ultimate value in this world, we should still live lives in this world where we're seeking the good of the city, where we're seeking the good of our neighbor, where we're honoring everyone, where we are living by the truth, even where it doesn't make us popular. What we are called to do is to faithfully carry out the responsibilities that God has assigned to us. Jesus tells a short parable of the faithful servant in Matthew 24, where he talks about the good and faithful servant who 
even though he doesn't know when his master is going to return, when his master returns, find him doing what he's supposed to be doing. And that servant is one that will receive the reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your calling to us. We thank you for the privilege that, that you have given us uh, as your people um, to be salt and light in the world, to live in a way that we can bless our, our city, where we can bless even our pagan neighbors, where we can serve you and honor you and glorify you. We pray that you would help us to be ever more faithful in doing this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.